In Revelation 13 here tonight, and Lord, we ask by your great grace to open your word to us, to behold wondrous things from it, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, Revelation 13, last time we looked at the first nine verses together, and I just want to go back to that and quickly read through it, make a comment or two. And tonight we pick up in verses 10 through 11, or 10 through 18. But uh, here it says, Then I stood and looked at, at the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns uh, ten crowns, and on his heads blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was a leopard. His feet were the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And we looked in Daniel chapter 7. This is almost word for word. Uh, this description of the four world ruling empires that would rule the earth. And the fourth world ruling empire just was called the beast. There wasn't like anything, and he gives a description in Revelation, uh, the same as in Daniel 7. And um, this is sort of the Reader's Digest version here in Revelation. It's just really quickly telling you uh, a very expanded version of Daniel. In Matthew 24, it doesn't even try to talk about it. Jesus just said, you know, the writer actually in Matthew says, just little parentheses, uh, and Jesus teaching, and when the abomination of desolation takes place, let the reader understand. Just expound on the whole book of Daniel, basically. Uh, in particular, chapter 7 and chapter 2. And once again, it's important to understand that this fourth kingdom, it's the revived Roman Empire. If you look at the three earlier kingdoms, they were destroyed by the kingdom that came after them. But Rome was not conquered, it just sort of faded out. And again, with these kingdoms, they had principalities. There was a, a, a flavor about them. There was a spirit about them. One like a, a bear, the other like a lion, and, and so forth. And the fourth ruling kingdom is sort of a combination of a spirit of all of them. And so Satan is called a god of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God of this age. When Adam and Eve sinned, from the best we can understand, the title deed of earth was given over to the devil through their sin. We see when, Je when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, he seemed to have the control of earth and he said, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you back the title deed of earth in essence. And Jesus doesn't argue over that. He just wasn't gonna worship Satan to get it. And then we came, remember, early in Revelation, and it talks about it, and they're weeping, saying, none's worthy to open the scroll and loose it. In other words, to take back that title deed. And they said, no, look, uh, there's a, the lamb, as though he's been slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, a lion and a lamb on the throne, who is worthy. And so, in this tribulation period, we, we begin to understand that probably at the moment of rapture, 
It'll happen immediately. And, and most think that the pieces of the puzzle will be pretty much put together before the rapture. What's important is that the Bible tells us Christians to not be looking for the Antichrist, but to be looking for Christ. And so when we look at the, all these things, it's like indicators. We'll take a, you know, take a note of this. Israel will become a nation again. Well, wow, that's happened. Um, after thousands of years of not being a, a nation, of speaking Hebrew, it's just like the Bible says from the four corners of the world. That generation, in Matthew 24, said won't pass away. A generation can be as little as 40 years. It can be as many as 120 years. Uh, if you go, uh, which most use the standard out of Genesis 15, uh, with Abraham having a dream and Israel would be out of the promised land at that we know later into Egypt for four generations. It was 400 years. It was a 100-year generation. So it could be 100 years. And so from 1948 all the way up to 2048. But somewhere in that generation, uh, all of these things uh, will come to a conclusion the Bible says. And so, again, um, we are definitely in that time. And so as Christians, we need to, to realize all the verses and they all give us warning. They're constant warnings. Every time Jesus, they said, let's talk about the end time, Jesus said, I'm gonna warn you. Don't you get caught up with the lies. Don't you get caught up with the sin. Don't you get caught up with the deception. Don't you get caught up But yet, what do we learn in Thessalonians? That before the rapture of the church, there'll be an apostasia, a falling away, an apostatizing, a a falling away of of Christians. Mainline Christian denominations started by incredibly Bible-based men in church history. These churches now uh, embrace homosexuality and embrace homosexual pastors and, and so forth. And it, it just, you go look at the roots of it. Never would anything like this have happened in Luther or, or Wesley or uh, Calvin or any of these great Bible uh, believing men. And it's just, it's apostasy. It's just, it's really hard to believe. I remember back in the 70s, David Wilkerson wrote a book. Um, the blast of the trumpet, and, and then he wrote a couple of them, and he said, we're getting ready to see um, this take place, this pasasia, and he said, and he named some mainline denominations, and he said, these will have homosexual pastors. I, David Hawking almost lost his entire, not David Hawking, excuse me, Wilkerson, David Wilkerson, uh, almost lost his entire ministry. Uh, for years, he was looked at as, as a complete uh, idiot for saying anything like that would happen but yet then it happened and all of a sudden uh, all his clout and credibility came right back but it was just that hard to imagine because at that time and I I was pastoring uh, at the beginning of the 80s but even before that I was teaching a lot and if you even mentioned the word homosexuality you would have people leave the church by saying you should never bring in anything so disgusting up uh, at church. I'm glad my kids weren't there. They, they probably would have thrown up. That's how homosexuality was looked at. And my stomach turned when I talked about it. It wasn't like 
And then, and then to imagine not only would it not be something that would, people would get upset even mentioning it, now it's being praised. And, and, you know, Christians are now coming up going, it sounded like you put them down and, you know, my dentist is a homosexual and he's the best dentist in town. And I can't believe you said that about, you know. And it's like, now they're even in, amongst people that go to Bible-believing churches, they still think now it's like, oh, they're born that way and we need to praise them and, and embrace them and that's their lifestyle and we just need to accept it and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, even in a Calvary Chapel some time back, the guy was in a Calvary Chapel after he made this statement, but he, he actually said, um, I want you guys to know if you ever need tips on how to raise kids, that I've watched these two parents for 15 years and they are the best parents I've ever met at every age level and I want them to come and stand up in front of the church with their kids so you, you can find them. And it was two lesbians. And uh, they clapped and cheered and the whole church clapped and cheered. And, uh, and it went to the LA Times, you know. Chuck Smith, the old guard, is out and here's the new guard coming in and here's what the new Calvary chapels are embracing. And... And uh, it, was, it was very scary. I mean, he wasn't a Calvary Chapel, like I say, uh, even a day after that comment. But I, I, you think, man, if a Bible-believing church like that could happen, such a statement. Um, again, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting times. And so this fourth beast, it's gonna revive itself and become the spirit of the world empire. It comes out of a revived over Roman Empire. And for years, we looked at the Roman Empire of the West, which is basically Europe. You know, I've been downtown London and there's Roman ruins, you know. Uh, I've been in Budapest and there's Roman ruins. Um, You know, all over the place, you can see them, they keep them. It's not just in Italy, it's all over Europe. But now they've been focusing that, a large period of the Roman Empire was actually the eastern arm of the Roman Empire, which was Turkey. And for there, it was the headquarters in Istanbul, Turkey today, um, for hundreds of years. And now, if you begin to look at some of the prophecies and some of the descriptions of that, some people are thinking now it's gonna actually come out of there. Because as we study in the tribulation period, the Antichrist sets up his world empire right out of ancient Babylon, which is Nazaria, Iraq. It's, it's uh, just south of Baghdad today. And uh, it was interesting, Hussein was rebuilding it to be the most glorious castle that's ever was existed. He was in the process of building that um, when we stepped in and uh, took his country away from him. And uh, interesting having some of the, the guys send me pictures saying, hey, I'm standing in ancient um, Babylon right now. And some of the guys just say, this will be where the Antichrist is ruling in a few years from. Um, interesting. Um, it, that'll have the economic center. It'll have the religious center. But then out of, other, out of the Roman Empire will be the military force that goes around the world. And so we, we see here that um, this empire. Now, in Romans 2, which is important to know, 
It's the same four world ruling kingdoms, but it's described in an image. And in this image, the head of gold, it's the Babylonian empire. The, the shoulders and the chest um, and the stomach is the uh, Medo-Persian empire. And then the waist and the thighs are the Greek empire. And then the legs, but mostly the feet, uh, iron mixed with clay. I don't know how you do that. Partly strong and very, very brittle made up that Roman Empire. And then it said, and a great huge rock came, hit the image, shattered it to pieces, and the rock then filled the earth. And it tells us that was God. Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation period and having his thousand year millennial reign. But we have some interesting things that take place in this chapter. Verse three, remember, it says, I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So he has this assassination attempt. He, he dies. And at, at the end of three days, he raises from the dead, and everybody's amazed at this. And the world then says, man, we thought this guy was amazing. Now we really know uh, he's amazing. And again, as we looked at this description, um, they go from seeing him as a world solver to God. They make that transition. You know, we see it often, and and today, for example, and currently we see this in North Korea, where, you know, every house has a giant picture of their emperor, you know. Uh, Every city you will go drive into and out of, giant posters uh, everywhere. Uh, every place of business. I mean, his picture is everywhere. It's, and uh, if basically you don't treat him like God, uh, you're going to get arrested and beat up and put to death. Uh, if you are in any way succeeding uh, in North Korea, you are treating him as a God. And uh, that's been taking place, you know, in other places, in China and, and uh, various times within the Soviet Union and, and so forth. Not uncommon. And this is what's going to happen uh, times a thousand and of course after he dies and raises again and we saw last week the other pictures out of Zechariah where he has one eye that's not working and uh, his right arm is not working he's somewhat paralyzed looking rather deformed going from this beautiful beautiful man uh, man specimen possessed by the devil now he's wounded but people love him all the more and um and at this point, after this, you know, before this, he's trying to not come out and say, worship me as God. And, and, and he's like he's sort of um, getting along with other religions and the Jewish religion even, helping them rebuild the temple. And then after this assassination attempt, and uh, again, he's a liar and all his signs are lying, signs and wonders. He didn't die and raise again, but that's, this is what it makes it appear like. Again, you know, there's a lot of interesting speculations because, you know, uh, we know from the little letter in Jude when God had had Moses go up on the mountain to die, to be gathered together with his people, it tells us in Jude that there was a battle between Satan and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. And that's what it tells us. And finally, he had to say, the Lord rebuke you, <laughs> Satan. And then he let him go. But he was not gonna let go of that body of Moses. And many speculate 
he was going to somehow possess this dead body of Moses, try to somehow give it life to come down and, and deceive the people, speak some kind of lying uh, prophecies. And, you know, Paul the apostle even said in Galatians, if, if even I come to you and speak to you something other than you've heard, let me be anathema, curse of the lowest part of hell. So even Paul was, was like saying, man, I don't know if Satan uh, can get somebody to look like me or uh, find somebody that looks like me or inspire him, empower me to try to possess my body if I die. I, I don't know. It's, again, speculation. Uh, in the Thessalonian letter, Paul says, if you get a letter that looks like it's from me, but it's speaking something other than I've told you, it's a lie. It's not from me. So Satan, again, is, is, is uh, a guy who can make things look so authentic and sometimes maybe even take uh, the authentic and make it de- a part of the deception. So what it's going to be with this guy raising the dead from the, it's all lying signs and wonders, but now the people are, are beloved. They're more enamored with him than ever before. And it's hard to even imagine the depth of love and awe and worship they have uh, to this man possessed by Satan. And at this time, he doesn't hold back. Just like the book of Daniel tells us in verse five, his mouth speaks great things, blasphemies. He's given authority to continue for 42 months. So now it's the second three and a half years we're looking at. In the book of Daniel 9, uh, it's called the, the, the seventh year uh, or the 70 days of Daniel, the seventh year. And the, the, there he's talking about there's a seven-year period, the tribulation period, and he breaks it down and, and describes what we know as the tribulation period. And uh, what breaks up the first three and a half from the second three and a half is in the first three and a half, there's tribulation coming upon the earth but this man of peace saying peace, peace is really not peace. He's saying to have answers. There really aren't answers, but people are believing his lie. But in the three and a half year period, he puts himself in the Jewish temple and there to all the Jews' amazement, he proclaims himself to be God. The world just says, absolutely. It's, just, it's a wonderful thing, but the Jews' eyes are open. You know, and in, and in Romans 11, it says there's gonna come a day when all Israel is saved. And at this point, the Jews realize, as it says, they look on him whom they pierce. They, they realize Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, at this point, when they reject him, he is just out and out slaughtering them. Uh, only one third of Jews on the world make it alive and make it to Petra. Well, it says in verse seven here, and it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God is allowing Satan to have complete power, success, authority, even over the believers. You know, it's, it's, it's again, it's a very big question. Matter of fact, the number one question asked by non-believers. And that is why does God allow it? Pain, sorrow, destruction, death, failure, sickness to his children or to the innocent. God's all powerful. God's all loving. Why doesn't he just stop it right now? He could. 
And there is gonna be a day he is gonna stop it all. There is gonna be when all evil is stopped, all pain and suffering is stopped. But God makes all things perfect in his time. And you say it's been thousands of years. Well, remember, to the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And however old you are, it feels like a day, doesn't it? And the older you get, life feels shorter somehow. And again, we look at our lifespan and you live to be 50 or live to be 100. It's gonna be like a second. And I can tell you, I've been in hospital rooms with people that are in their late 80s and 90s and they are bitter at God that they, they're dying and they don't have longer to live. And you're just like going, dude, you're 93. You should be happy about it. Most people don't make that. I mean, that's what you're thinking. And they're just like, why isn't God helping me? Why can't the doctors get a, you know, a way to cure this cancer? And you know, I can't believe that God's allowing me to die. And it's just like, they feel like they're getting ripped off. You know, they're 93, but they should be 193. There's just, if this is all you got, this is your heaven, <laughs> For Christians, this is the closest to hell we're ever gonna be with pain and sorrow and suffering and seeing evil. For non-believers, this is the closest to heaven they're ever gonna see. Loveliness and purity and kindness and goodness and because they're gonna be going into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. They're never gonna see any of the precious, lovely things uh, ever again. And so people that this is their heaven, yes, I gotta agree, they are, they are losing their heaven. For us, we're losing our hell. But remember the book of Job. God said, I'm gonna allow it. I'm gonna allow the devil to have power over to Job. But he, he, he said only to this degree and then he pushed it and let him have a little more degree. And then he pushed it and let him have a little more degree until ultimately Job lost all his wealth all his family, and his health. And, uh, and after all of that went for quite some time, we don't know how long, then the Lord healed him and, and restored it. But yet, as we um, look at the Second Chronicle, or Second Corinthians 12, where Paul said, there's a messenger of Satan, like a thorn in my flesh, completely weakening me, and I keep asking God to, to deliver me, and God says No that in your weakness, uh, my strength will be made perfect. So I'm gonna allow this demon to have victory over you, Paul, for quite a long time. You better get used to it. It's like, what are you thinking? Then, of course, uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, read it. <laughs> you know, we like to read the, the story and just see all the victories. You know, by faith, you know, they won the battles. By faith, you know, David killed Goliath, you know. By faith, you know. And then, but if you look at it, it says, by faith, they were delivered from the sword, I think it's like verse 35. And then two verses later, I think it's verse 37, it says, by faith they were killed with the sword. By faith, mothers received their dead back to life, but then by faith, they also saw their kids die. And then it goes on and says, by faith, they lost everything. By faith, they wandered around in holes and caves whom the world wasn't worthy of. And then it talks about all kinds of other ways they were put to death. And it says, why? That that all of us together are gonna receive the reward. That those who have gathered together to be with their people, as it says in the Old Testament, 
those who are gonna be raptured and those who suffered all together at the rapture, we're all gonna receive our reward. But right now, uh, there is times that we, we wish God would just stop it all. But he says, I'll give you grace through what you're ever going through, but it is my perfect will, and it's more than that. It is the best for you. The best for you. But I'm suffering, I'm poor, I'm struggling, I'm unhappy, I'm, you know what? I'm not giving you second best. And we we know that, don't we? I mean, if if your kid is trying to do his math and he can't do it and you say, oh, you go out and play and you do his math homework for him and he keeps getting A's on all his math, what happens when the day of the test comes? He gets an F. They're going, oh, I'm flunking out. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine because he got A's on all his homework and he gets the F on the test. If he doesn't struggle, right? They're in there crying, I hate this math. It's the hardest thing in the world. And oh, I want to die. I want to get out of that school. You know, let me join the French Foreign Legion. I'm only eight, but I need to go. And you just make them do their homework or eat their vegetables or, you know, the same way if your kid's trying to climb the tree and you just pick him up and put him in the tree, They'll never climb it. But they go out there and they try and they pull and they pull. And the next day, oh, they're so mad and they're kicking that tree. And then one day, they pulled enough, they've developed their muscles. And all of a sudden, they can pull themselves up. But if you didn't let them have the pain and the struggle, they wouldn't also have gained the strength. And so God is looking for us at an eternal weight of glory. He's looking at us to have a godly character, And the Bible makes it clear that that godly character comes through trials. James chapter one, rejoice, take joy in all the various kinds of trials. Let the joy have their perfect, or let the trials have their perfect work. Rejoice in everything. Just go through it and and don't fight it. Don't complain about it. Just, you get through it and then, you know, it's, you're in the tunnel, there's no light, it's the worst, you're gonna die. Paul says, I was pushed above measure, beyond, beyond strength, despair of life itself, and all of a sudden you see a little tiny, you know, pinhole of a light at the end of the tunnel, and you keep going, and all of a sudden, you're, you're out of the tunnel, and you're like, man, I didn't think I was gonna make it this time. And you did. And all the years, and most, a lot of times it's most of our life, we struggle with health, with relationships, with finances, with friendships, all of these things. But it makes us the person we need to be. There's a great quote by um, C.S. Lewis that says that, you know, God speaks to us in our comforts. That God teaches us in our relationships with love. But God shouts to us and puts in us his marvelous character through pain. That's where it really comes, that's where the deep, wonderful qualities that make you endeared to other people. It wasn't because they were millionaires getting a nice suntan on their yacht all week. It's because they were struggling, trying to figure out how to put the beans on the table and how to keep, kids from self-destructing and all of those kind of things. We wrestle, don't we? And if you've ever noticed, we all seem to have about the same amount of struggle. Rich people, they got a whole set of pains. 
that you, you really, you say, it'd be nice to be rich, but man, I'll tell you, I, I don't think so. I've seen people that are rich in so much pain. They got themselves, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. And um, in the same way, you know, Solomon, in all his wisdom, said, Lord, don't let me be so rich. Jesus said, for a man, a rich man get to heaven is like a camel getting through the eye of a needle. It's a tough thing. So you think, it's all gonna be solved if I have enough money. No, you just turn in one set of problems for another set of problems. People that seem to have problems or have great marriages have struggles with their kids or people that have, you know, great marriages and then it's health problems. It's always something, isn't it? Doesn't it feel that way? You know, you push the bubble down on one place and the bubble pops up somewhere else. And, uh, and that's where you just gotta rejoice, Lord, always and everything give thanks. There's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Amen? You say that with me. There's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Down to every hair on your head. So if you go out of here tonight and there's a big dent in the back of your car, you say, thank you, Lord, for that dent. There's no coincidence in your kingdom. It doesn't say you rejoice for it, but rejoice in it. There, there is a reason in there. And uh, life's hard. You gotta get your eyes on the Lord. Well, this thing is gonna have victory, and so he's gonna be incredibly famous, incredibly beloved. He's gonna be incredibly worshiped. It's just amazing, because Jesus said in John, I come in my Father's name, referring to nature, and you hate me. But there's gonna be one coming in his own name, his own nature, and him you will love. (laughs) Referring to Satan. And Satan, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the, 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 the spirit of this generation. He's gonna come and he's gonna be so politically correct. He's gonna be just so in the groove of, you know, he's gonna probably be able to dance like, like uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I can't even think of the name. Um, who's a great dancer? Yeah, Michael Jackson, so I was thinking of it. Fred Astaire, yeah, he's better than Fred Astaire. But uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson, I really know, I'm just trying to show you I'm not worldly enough to know who those people are. Um, just actually being old. Mike, you know, he's gonna have all the moves and he's gonna have all the sayings and he's gonna just be the coolest and the world's gonna just love him. And again, again, sorry about that. It could have been the rapture. Just make sure you're ready. Um, to think, you know, you're thinking, oh, these guys are gonna be in pain. They're gonna be tortured. They're gonna be, you know, even put to death. It's gonna be so hard. I think the hardest thing, guys, is going to see the world in love with the devil. You know, C.S. Lewis, another little writing that was just clever as could be. It's a day, everybody gets a day bus trip to heaven and to hell. And the people who get the bus trip from hell to heaven, they're just in torment. 
because everything's so clean and pure and holy and everybody just is bowing down and worshiping Jesus and singing songs to Jesus and, and they just all love each other and just no, want, no evil, don't want to think evil, don't want to have evil, don't want to, just want to kind and love and, and these people who are visiting from hell, they just, they, it just, they can't wait to get out of there. They're begging to quit being tortured and, and go back to hell where they don't have to hear the name of Jesus anymore and be around all these lovey-dovey people. Interesting, huh? But again, the people from heaven to hell, it's just the same thing. These people just who, who love to believe the lie, who love deception, who want to worship that spirit of self and selfishness and 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 just the whole spirit of Satan they they love it and interesting to think that that people in hell the people that that are in hell that they, they don't want to leave and it's amazing when Jesus died on the cross it says for 3 days he preached the gospel and it it, is, it, it, it sort of says that it's everybody who ever died at that point, could have believed they had an opportunity from Adam to that time to hear right from Jesus. And then it says, he said, captivity captive, that, that people could have heard and believed even at that point. Now, whether they could have left the Hades part, and we don't know, it's speculation, but it seems like that. But yet, I, people even then are unwilling. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man fared sumptuously and Lazarus, this poor man, ate from his trash and they both died and Lazarus went into the bosom of Abraham. And uh, the rich man went into Hades and, and there in Sheol, they could see each other and, and, and the rich man said, Father Abraham, please, you know, allow uh, Lazarus to put a little tip of water on his finger and put it on my tongue for this place I'm at is in torment. And Abraham said, no, there's a chasm. It can't be crossed. You in your lifetime had your comfort and ease. Now Lazarus for eternity will have his. And he said, well, please just send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my five brothers. They're exactly like me. And, and uh, Father Abraham said, if they won't believe the scriptures, they won't believe even if one raises from the dead, which was a clear prophecy of these guys soon seeing Jesus <laughs> there in Sheol and seeing him preach the gospel to them and raising together and uh, actually see his resurrection from the roots up. Um, and still not believing. So the heart of man is amazingly hard. And so I think the greatest of all the sufferings of the saints on earth at that time is that just to have to to hear people worshiping any other than Jesus. If you've traveled the world and see people worshiping a false Jesus or another God and to hear them with their songs and with their chants and with the screaming from towers, it, it just, it's grievous to the heart that they don't have salvation, they don't have eternal life, that they don't have a uh, forgiveness of sins and the power of the Spirit living in them. It's just, it's just horrible. And you see the entire nation, sometimes a billion people, fifth of the world's population, just in spiritual darkness and Satan just... Ruling and it just it just seems like it's always dark out in those countries and a lot of it's just the smog but a lot of it is just 
the spiritual darkness. You can almost cut it with a knife. Uh, just the lostness of people and how Satan has kept them in their power. And, and of course, um, he's, as we saw back, uh, he's just blaspheming God in verse six. I skipped a second ago. And his tabernacles and those who dwell in heaven just saying, look, Jesus, you never got anybody to worship you, uh, a percent of the world to worship you like this, which is true. Well, in verse eight, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names are not written in the book of life, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And what is he saying here? He's in essence saying, it's all in my control. Now just think about it. He's telling us, this was written by the apostle John 2,000 years ago. And he's telling us things that are gonna happen in great detail 2,000 years in advance. So all of a sudden, when this Antichrist is ruling the world, or we're now, we're sitting here seeing Israel come back as a nation again. We're like, whoa, that's amazing. It's like, we knew about that. Matter of fact, that we knew that from the Old Testament 4,000 years ago, um, this was gonna be happening. So it, it's, it's not some thing that we're like, wow, we never could have dreamed that up. God told us in advance. He's the only one that can tell us the future before it, it happens. Nobody else can know the end from the beginning but God. And so when we're in those times where it just seems like the power of God's not the power of God, God's not hearing prayer, God's not helping the believers, God's not strengthening Christians, God's not healing like we want him to heal and, and prosperous the way he wants to prosper. And, and we see people backsliding and apostasy, people walking away from the faith and, and people embracing the spirit, a deceptive spirit it tells about in First Timothy 4 and, and, and falling away from the faith. All of these things were told ahead of time. And, and here he's just reminding us again, this didn't happen a week in advance or, 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 or a day after it happened, God came up with the plan. You know, he created man and then all of a sudden Adam and Eve sinned and he's like, whoa, what do I do? You know, huddle. Okay, Trinity huggle, huddle here. Uh, come on, Gabriel. What are we gonna do here? Plan A, play, let's, let's do a brainstorming session. What are we gonna do now that sin has come to the earth? We have no idea, you know, let's figure this out. You know, that wasn't happening. God knows the beginning and the end. He knew before man was ever made, man was gonna sin. God had a plan from the foundation of the world and, and beyond into eternity. And here he's just reminding us that in verse eight again, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have what? Not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When was Jesus slain in God's mind upon the cross? Jesus was slain on the cross before time ever began. Jesus dying on the cross wasn't God's, I was gonna say Hail Mary play. It doesn't work. <laughs> Those analogies don't work. Um, but you know what I'm saying. It wasn't the last ditch effort to try to solve man's problems. Jesus knew he would have to come and die on the cross before man was ever created. And he also knew that there would be people through this incredible, horrible tribulation time that would make it, not because of they're tough, not because they can take pain better than other people can take pain, 
Not because they're more stubborn, I'm not gonna take that mark of the beast no matter what you do, no. It's because God, like all who are believers, names were written in the book of life. And in, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, this is where Jesus talks about separating the, the sheep from the goats. And it says in Matthew 25, 34, it says, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, when? From the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 4, 1, it says this, just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says this, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. And so, in John 6, Jesus says, no one comes unto me unless the Father first draws them. That 100% of everybody who comes and receive salvation in Jesus was drawn by God. The Bible calls them the elect. Matter of fact, in Matthew 24, it says, of these days, if God did not shorten this time, not even the elect would be saved. Um, In other words, it's, it's gonna be a tribulation that can't even be imagined. So anybody thinking you wanna live a compromising life and you'll just get saved in the tribulation period, not a good backup plan. Uh, It says not even they, the elect of God would make it, but it's a wonderful thing just to stop and just to realize if you believe in Jesus here tonight, it's because you are the elect of God. You were called by God before time began. Why, Why does God tell us that? It sort of blows our mind and we try to figure it out and we just quickly realize there's information we're lacking to really complete the whole mathematical understanding of it or whatever. And people often go the extra step and add to it. I, I've had people say, well, I'm, biblically I can go this far, but intellectually I can take it this far and that's where they end up in taking this whole predestination election and foreknowledge of God to a level that it's not in the Bible. But why does he tell us this? Because when we're in these tough times to realize God's not stuck with us God's not disappointed in us. God is not frustrated with us. God's not, you know, dumbfounded by us. That God knows about you before time began. He chose you knowing all of your weaknesses. He knew that he could choose you and get you all the way to glory with him. Or he never would have chosen you to begin with. And so again, when we realize, man, you know, Satan comes and accuses us saying, you're such a lemon. You just say, yep, but I'm God's lemon, you know? He chose me, he likes lemons. And, and it's a neat thing, just saying, I, I didn't start this, God started this, God drew me. And these guys in the tribulation period, uh, I'm sure they're gonna remember this first and just say, thank you, Lord, that this all happened before the foundations of the world and I have ears to hear now, it didn't say to the church as it did earlier in Revelation 2 and 3, but it's to believers because the church, I believe, is in heaven. And in verse 10, as we pick up here tonight, 
He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. And here's a famous verse that people know and quote often. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And so um, he basically says, it doesn't seem like the evil ever come into judgment. It just seems as we saw in Psalm 23, the psalmist says, I saw the wicked being wicked and unrighteous and getting rich and in their wealth they had children and children's children and they died at an old age in comfort with all their grandchildren and great-grandchildren around them. And then I looked at the righteous and they just got poorer <laughs> doing things right and honest and it wasn't prospering them and they in their poverty struggled and, and they died in poverty and they died uh, young and they died without having their family around because they're out working and whatever. And, and, he, and then the psalmist said, I just, I almost stumbled. I almost said, this is, it's not true. It's not true to follow God, it pays off. And then he went into the house of the Lord <laughs> and as he worshiped, God said, Life on earth isn't the end of the story. There's eternity. That the wicked men sometimes in this lifetime, they are wicked and they kill people with a sword and in this lifetime, they are killed with the sword. And we say, ah, that's what the Bible says. But the fact is, a lot of times people kill with the sword and they go on and live a great life. I mean, a lot of the Nazis who did horrible things and stole millions of dollars from the Jews and went off to live in, you know, Brazil and other countries and lived a a very lucrative lifestyle after they left their Nazi lifestyle. They didn't live by the sword and die by the sword. They lived by the sword and then prospered until they died. But that's not the end of the story. They're going to leave this body and they're going to stand before the Lord and God is going to judge them to the way they condemned people. They're going to be condemned. The whatever justice needs to be put upon them, God's going to put that justice upon them. And so we just got to be comforted that time or we'll be ate up by bitterness. I've just seen it and especially in cases of rape where you know, girls are trying to get vindication and, and they just get humiliated and then the rapist gets some sentence that's not just and, and you, know, it, it, you know, the dads and the brothers and, and everybody's hurting and just angry and, and it's just like, you know what? The Bible says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God, God is going to finish the justice upon them. And even though it doesn't look like it, and so here are these believers in this tribulation period and and seeing horrible, evil, sadistic things done to them, and they just gotta remember that when a person's living in a wicked life, it's gonna lead them into captivity, whether it's on this earth they're put in prison or into an eternal uh, hell of prison, one way or another, they are going to be paid by God according to the, their, their wicked ways. And in verse 11, 
Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. So we saw the one earlier in verse 1 coming out of the sea. This one now is coming out of the earth. This one earlier was the beast and, and so forth. This one here is like a lamb, but yet it speaks like a dragon. And... Um, Again, this is all a part of the deception. In Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So this next beast coming and pointing to the first beast looks like a lamb, but yet it's a dragon inside. Remember in Genesis 3, the serpent came, and at that time it was the most beautiful of all creatures, and it was somehow known for wisdom. And it, this is the one the devil chose to come in, if you would, a sheep. Uh, but yet uh, the devil coming in this pure, uh, wise animal. And uh, so again, we got to remember, this is the, the age-old way of, of Satan doing his, his evil bidding, uh, if you would. And so, again, in verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And now in verse 12, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. And causes the earth and those who dwell in the worship, the first beast, whose deadly wounds were healed. He performs great signs, so it even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. Now, it's, it's, there's certain things within the nature of man that I, you just don't understand. But for whatever reason... If on command, you can call fire and it comes bullying out of the sky and hits the earth and blows up a building, and you could do that on command, you know, a little tiny one there, a big one there, a giant one over at that country on the other side of the planet, that men at that point think you are the ultimate power of the universe. There is no greater power. That is God. Um, It's interesting because we remember the story of Elijah. And remember, he says, whoever's God, they're, you know, the God of Baal, you'll be able to call fire to heaven. Or, you know, if my God's God, then he'll call fire to heaven. Remember the story. And the Baal worshipers, they believed that it was going to happen. They did it all morning, all afternoon. They they were cutting themselves. They, they, They were just dumbfounded that fire didn't come out of heaven. And then Elijah prays, remember, and light fire came out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And then he's like, in his story, it's over. But of course, the real Satan worshipers, uh, Jezebel uh, and so forth, they weren't convinced at all. They're like, that's not God. But what do we learn here? That Satan did have that power to call fire out of heaven. The real miracle in the Elijah story is not that fire came out of heaven when he prayed for it, it's that fire didn't come out of heaven earlier. There's Michael and Gabriel up there fighting off the principalities keeping from fire coming out of heaven. But it really, as we see here, isn't the proof it's of God. It could be equally the proof that it's of Satan. But yet, notice what happens in verse 14. 
With this one, I'm sure there's many other signs that the, he does that are, that are demonic, healing people, um, doing other kind of miracles of, of blessing crops or whatever. I'm sure there's many things. But he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he can granted to do in this sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived and was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here's the interesting thing. So picture some kind of statue. But this statue comes to life. And I don't think like some animated thing of Abraham Lincoln at Disneyland, you know, oh, good day, America, you know. This thing, I think, it's just like a human life. I wonder if it's going to look like the beast of Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold and, and of, of silver and bronze and so forth, and looking, but it's some majestic beast that represents the Antichrist. And so you have this second beast, the prophet, pointing to the Antichrist. And now you've got this image somehow coming to life, pointing they're all pointing back. It's all Satan himself uh, empowering each of these creatures. And, and if you would, a trinity. You end up with this demonic trinity all pointing to the Antichrist that was wounded and now back to life. Interesting, in Second Thessalonians, or excuse me, verse 15, let me read that. And he granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So everybody worships or you die. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, listen to this. This is so important. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, this person possessed by Satan, is according to the working of Satan with all power, all signs, all lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now, why are they in this deceived place? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Remember the story of Pharaoh where, you know, they come down and they have the power and, and then at first the magicians of Pharaoh is able to match it and then quickly therein they said, Pharaoh, this is God. <laughs> this isn't us mimicking God anymore. This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. And then his heart gets hardened. And if you look in Exodus, it says he hardens his heart. And then it turns where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's a point where God says he loves the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, have everlasting life. God loves you. His spirit's convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And there's a point where a person just says, I want my sin. I love pleasure rather than God. I want my 
you know, I want to do my thing first, and then, you know, once I get my billions, and I'll submit to God, I'll become a good Christian. You know, once I, you know, lay with as many women as I want to lay with, then I'll repent and become a Christian. You know, as much as I party, as much as I want to party, then I'll repent and become a Christian. You know, they, they think they can play some kind of game with God like that. But there comes a point where they say, no, no, I don't want to repent. Remember, First John says there in verse one, if you say you have no sin, then you say God is a liar and there's no way the truth of God can abide in you. There's people like that today just saying, I'm not a sinner. I hate that you're telling me I'm a sinner because your Judeo-Christian ethic says I'm a sinner. Well, I reject your Judeo-Christian ethic and there is no sin. It doesn't exist. Sin is only what you believe it is. And I don't believe fornication or adultery or, or uh, whatever is a sin and therefore it's not a sin. Well, you can say whatever you want to say, uh, but it doesn't make it so. This is God's word. And, and so there comes a point where they won't. And now it seems like in this tribulation period that God is hardening the hearts of those, like he did Pharaoh, for them to believe the lie even in a more profound way. Well, finishing up here in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then in verse 18, here is the wisdom, let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is number of man, his number is, what? Six, six, six. Then we make some kind of, I don't know. People always do that. It is pretty neat how uh, non-believers all over the world seem to have this part engraved in their minds. Excuse me, no, no pun intended. But they do know this has represented Satan. And it seems like sometimes people mock. I remember for a while in Israel, all the license plates started with 666 and then the rest of it. And I just think it was just some atheist guy just wanting to mock Christians that are coming over to visit um, Israel just to say, ah, in your face, we're all 666, you know. And I also saw one other time in Europe uh, on some license plates where uh, for a period of time, it's like all started with sick and people are freaking out and sending photos and, you know, all the guys are putting it in their sermons going, here it is, guys, it's on license plates and, you know, I don't know Romania, it's like, ha ha, we found it. I don't know what 6-6 means. I don't think we need to speculate it. Um, in Second Peter, I don't have this verse on the video to put up tonight, but just listen. In Second Peter 1.19, this is a verse you really do need to memorize when it comes to understanding prophecy. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this saying? There's certain pieces of information of prophecy, it's in a dark place. And it's there. And at one point, God's gonna turn the light on and you're gonna see it, what it means. But until then, we just have the information. And the worst thing you can do is jump out in speculation. And I, I've talked about this, how people have done this looking very, very stupid. There, when I was in junior high, there was a series that came out 
uh, on the rapture of the church. So it was really good and went through the whole seven-year tribulation period. And uh, I look back and it was just hilarious, you know, because everybody had a Sharpie uh, black marker and it was somebody with bad handwriting too. You know, everybody had this 666 on them, you know, it was like get some guy with horrible handwriting to, you know, put on everybody's head or hand or whatever. They all had giant 666 on there. And of course that was it. And then of course, you know, the whole computer age came in and UPS or GPS, and I'm, I'm a little dyslexic. UPS came in, and we know where y'all are now, and uh, we deliver your packages. And uh, and of course now, you know, some junior high kid can take apart your phone and you know put it in your ear while you're sleeping and track you. You know, it's like, how is he going to do that? I, I don't know. I I, I know uh, there's technology now. It's micro stuff where they can actually. You walk into a building, it can blow on you and get on your your skin, and it's like a, a thousand GPSs on your body, and you can't wash them off and stuff for a time. So, you know, how is he going to eventually do it? You're not going to be able to hide, not even a cave. You're not going to be able to buy and sell. I mean, we can see how this can work out, right? I mean, it's, technology is now there, uh, how that would happen and, and not be able to turn it back. But either way, here's here's the thing. He's making it clear that in this time you are either radically suffering for following Christ or you are radically blessed by following Satan. Why do I, why do I say that distinction? Because Jesus told us at the beginning in his gospel. He stopped everyone and he said, the multitude, everybody's following me, but you're not all my followers. If you really want to follow me, you are going to have to lose your life in this world to gain it in the life to come. You're going to have to deny yourself daily, take up a cross, and first, then you can start following me. You're going to have to hate your brother, sister, mother, wife, children, yes, even your own life, if you want to be a follower of me. And of course, they're all flipping out at this. Got to lose our life, got to take up a cross, got to hate our family. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came with the sword to divide even you against your spouse or the mother against her own daughter, and et cetera, et cetera. And what was he saying? He said that your devotion to me has got to be so greater that the next love in your life, the next commitment you have in your life is like the distance between love and hate, life and death. And in reality, whether you realize it or not, you are having to come to that place in your heart that says, even though nobody else will follow, yet I will follow. In many nations, it's that way now. In a Muslim nation, you become a Christian, your own family will probably kill you before it goes sundown. In most communist countries, you would be kicked out of the house or kicked out of the military or kicked out of college or put to death. Or There's all kinds of, there's always been that. But in a country like ours, it's gotta be a choice. But there's a lot of people that Jesus says on that day will come and say, Lord, Lord, open unto me. 
And he'll say, be gone, you doers of iniquity. I don't know you. Oh, I know you. I, and he, they begin to give their description. He says, no, you've never done my will. And so people that are willing to follow Christ as long as it doesn't cost them their money, <laughs> as long as they follow Christ, as long as it doesn't mean I have to do anything, I'll follow Christ as long as it doesn't have to embarrass me. I'll follow Christ as long as I don't have to witness about him. I'm gonna follow Christ as long as I don't have to look stupid around my friends when they tell a dirty joke and I'm gonna have to laugh along with it. I can't, you know. You're basically saying is, is, I will follow Christ as long as it's on my terms. And my terms are no pain, easy, believism. Remember, there's people saying, Lord, let me first, or let me follow you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I have nowhere to lay my, le- my head. And the guy's like, no problem. You know, I'm gonna first bury my dad and then I'll come follow you. And, and he goes, no, let the dead bury their own dead. He basically said, let me get the family inheritance. Let me get the family business started. I'll have that nice fat income from owning everything. And then when I'm financially set, then I'm there for you. And this is the kind of thing that they were wanting and Jesus said no. It's, it's, that's not the offer. The offer is to submit your life now, to be willing to lose all, to be willing to die to self and then to follow Jesus. And it's interesting at the end of the tribulation period that we, these people here are put in a place that there is no choice <laughs> You either suffer greatly, more greatly than, he's, like he said, he had to shorten those days, not, not, even, not even the elect would make it, or um, to be that. And I think it just comes back for us to, to let the fire of God's word pierce us. Now, I, I, we're gonna be in heaven. All of us who are believers are gonna be raptured, and this is something that we'll maybe see in the videos later on. But yet, God wants us to know about this. He said there's a blessing that if you study this, and I think it's very simply, just let the fire of God's word burn the worldliness out of you. To say, Lord, right now, for me to suffer for your sake, it's really hard to do. (laughs) I gotta go look for it. It's like I'm here Sunday morning, two services, and I have to park you know, at the back of the parking lot and, and walk an extra 20 feet, you know, that's suffering for Christ in, in America, you know. And it's amazing, you know, when you look how much income we have to compare to the rest of the world. You know, most of the world doesn't even make our tithe as their total income. But yet our 10%, we still can't give it, even though we make 20 times what the average person in the rest of the world makes. You know, and they tithe on their, you know, hundred dollars a month they make. They tithe on it, but yet, you know, here we are. It, it's just, it's an interesting thing. And I think as a Christians in America, we really need to let the Lord say, God, just use your word to search my heart, to see if I'm wanting a Christianity that has no commitment, a Christianity that has no suffering, a Christianity that has no willingness to lay my life down to follow you. Amen? Lord, we just come before you right now and we hear about people in other countries right now having to suffer much, see their own kids go through poverty, see their own kids not be able to get educated. 
because they choose to be Christians. We see about in Sudan over the last decades of just unbelievable hell those people are going through because the Muslim terrorist is coming in and turning the kids into warriors and the girls into sex slaves and and just cutting off their hands and their lips and and just horrible evils but yet they would not deny you and um and then we see really the worst it ever is going to be ever on the planet is right here in the tribulation period and we just come right now and just say lord forgive us forgive us for wanting a, a christianity that doesn't have surrender <laughs> that doesn't have a cross that we pick up that doesn't have a willingness to at least to say lord here i'm willing i'm willing to give all i'm willing to serve a thousand hours more than I am now. I'm willing to sell everything I have and give to the poor. I'm willing to, whatever it is you want, Lord, yes, yes. I don't care the pain. I don't care the soft suffering. I don't care the hardship. I don't care what poverty it might bring to me personally. I am willing, Lord, what is it you want? And at least have that willing heart to do what you would have us to do. And Lord, we don't know if that's true or not. We need you right now to search our heart to see if there'd be any wicked way. And Lord, we've just been talking about Satan these last couple of weeks. Just, I know it's true, but also it's just sort of yucky to climb into this very negative, ugly hole. I'm glad to be getting out of it and quit talking about him. But just right now, just put your spirit of cleanness on us, Lord. Just put your spirit of comfort on us right now. Even though we need to know these facts, Lord, just let the yucky goop of the devil just go over us now and just let the the sweet purity of your Holy Spirit like a dove come upon us. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night in the Lord. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lord.